0: with a reading from Luke 1. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to church. Please say hello to someone. Thanks, Mike. Just drive by
1: guilting by Mike. God, starting to preach up here. (laughs) Just kidding. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Good morning, man. Good job coming to church on a rainy day. Someone sent me this meme the other day. I just thought I needed to share it with you. Um, I can do all things through Christ. You skip church when it rains. <laughs> but you guys didn't. So if you're watching online, this meme's for you. Oh, oh I did it. I did it. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome, right? What happened to that bravado, you know, when the rain came? Um, Glad you're with us. My name's Chris. I'm the teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Um, and Christmas has come early to you all. My gift to you is that your pastor no longer looks like a 70s used car salesman. I've shaved, I've shaved the mustache. The bad man is gone. Uh, so Merry Christmas. Don't need to get me anything. I'm good. Uh, but, uh, I, I was going to reiterate what Mike was going to say, but he was so heavy-handed with it. I'll just I'll go on with it. i just kidding. Uh, we're in a season, um, uh, historically of the church, called Advent. And depending on which tradition you grew up in, it may be a new thing for you. But basically, we light candles, which we remember to do, which is good. Um, that leads us up to Christmas, and each candle calls us to reflect on some aspect of the Christmas story, the, some aspect of the mystery of God becoming man, which is one of the central claims of Christianity, and the implications of the incarnation uh, of God wrapping Himself in flesh, Jesus coming to earth. Uh, last week. Uh, we sat with the analogy of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 9, if you've ever read those, very classic Christmas texts, that light has dawned on those dwelling in deep darkness, that the light, we said last week, was God himself uh, come to man, humbling himself into our station and coming down and being with us. That was the author writing himself into the script. That's what the picture of Christmas is, that he came to us. Last week we said that actually he... Had to come to us because there was no way we could ever find our way to Him. Uh, last week we said humanity uh, is blind, it was real chipper. <laughs> dead in sin the pride and unwillingness and an unableness really to find god rests in all of our hearts and the light dawning over the horizon was god himself coming to us as savior yes to reconcile the world to himself yes and amen but as king that's what we sat with last week he came not just as savior but as king he brought with him a government A kingdom, literally, on his shoulders. It's what he brought into the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her. Hey, good job. The light in Christmas, y'all, is not just forgiveness. That's there. Praise his name. But the light is that he's bringing a kingdom. That means he's bringing a complete new way of living. A new rule of life. If you notice, y'all, Almost all of Jesus' parables. Anyone ever read the New Testament? Almost all of a couple of you have. Almost all of his parables has this small phrase in front of it. It's really easy to miss. You kind of miss the uh, the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest. That's how it goes, right? There's this little small phrase almost in front of every parable of Jesus. Uh, you know what it is? It's this: the kingdom of God is like. You got a Bible? You can look. It's there. Almost in front of every parable, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like, apparently, one of the primary aims in the teachings of Jesus is trying to tell you the nature of the kingdom. Because over and over and over again, all the parables, I'd invite you to go back through and look. You'll be shocked. Around 86 times that phrase shows up in the ESV, kingdom of God. He'd say this. He'd say, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Kingdom of God's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like you know what it's like. You know what the kingdom of God's like. It's like yeast working its way through dough, over and over and over again. Jesus, the kingdom of God's like. And then he'd launch into this story. The kingdom of God's is like a it's like a farmer who has uh, who goes away and he has all these hands, these, these workers to come help in the farm. But you know what? For some people, like the, the kingdom of God, they, they were lazy workers. And they they disregarded the tenant's wishes. And so when that when that owner comes back, sorry, I got it backwards. Yeah, the tenant. The tenants disregard the landowner's wishes, sorry. They disregarded his wishes. So when, dude, when that landowner comes back, it's gonna be bad for those workers. He so said the kingdom of God's like that for some people. For some people, it's like a treasure-hidden field. For some people, it's it's paying the piper for wasting the responsibility given to him. Dude. Have you read the New Testament lately? Uh, It's fascinating. He said, you know what? For some people, to get into the kingdom, go look, it's there, man. I'm not making this stuff up. He says, you know what? It would be better if you plucked your eyes out and got into the kingdom blind than have your eyes and be outside the kingdom. Go look, y'all. Jesus' message was primarily that the kingdom of God was at hand. What he means is you can reach out and touch it. What do you think of when you think of heaven? You know another one he gives? This is really good for Americans. They love this one. He says, You know the kingdom when you know what it's like? Oh, rich people really struggle to get in the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Man, Jesus was really concerned that you know the nature of the kingdom. 86 times in the New Testament, you're going to see that phrase. It was central to his message, right? What's the kingdom? Well, Jesus told us. Also, you have a brain, and you can use that and figure it out. Most famous prayer in history, let thy kingdom come, let thy will. So the kingdom of God has to do with the will of God. So when we see the words kingdom of God, we think of uh, the sweet by and by. When you die, you can get into the kingdom, not according to Jesus. The kingdom's close to you. It's at hand. And it has to do with the will of God. It's here, close. Jesus is showing us in many, many parables how the perfect will of God comes into your heart. He said it's like yeast works its way slowly until the entire thing is permeated the nature of the dough itself completely transformed that's what the kingdom's like that's what it's like when the will of God the perfect will of God comes into your life it's a fascinating exercise actually to go through the New Testament and replace the word kingdom of God with the will of God the will of God is like and then read the parable the will of God is like and then read it it's fascinating I dare you to do it where is the kingdom of God where is it y'all Well, it's out there somewhere right after you die, not according to Jesus. The kingdom of God's at hand. In fact, it's come here in him. You know where it's at? You know where the kingdom of God is? The kingdom of God is wherever God gets his way. It's his rule. It's his reign. It's the preferred will of God in your life. Not the permissive will. Not him letting you do you. It's the preferred will of God. It's his ways, his way of living, not your way. Whatever God's will is done, that's where the kingdom is. Heaven, as you think of it, has come to earth in Jesus. And what did it look like? Dude, the blind being healed, the lepers being healed, the lame being healed, the lame, the crippled, leaping like a deer, that's what Jesus said the kingdom of God looks like, y'all. That's when it comes close. Whatever God gets his way. Where, so where is it, dude? Where's the kingdom? You can answer the question. Uh, you, can, you can figure that out by answering one question. You want to know if you're in the kingdom? Anyone? You want to know? Like, am I in the kingdom? You can, here's, the, here's the question you need to ask yourself. Who's in charge of your life? The kingdom is wherever the king is in charge. Wherever his will is done, that's where the kingdom is. Some of you are like, is this biblical? You gotta go look, man. I'm, t- I'm just tell you what the word says, man. Now listen, what's a kingdom? It's international law is the same idea. We don't call them kingdoms anymore. We call them countries. If you go to Canada, guess what? You're subject to their laws, aren't you? You break the... Can- I tried to look for like weird international laws. I saw a bunch of them, but I didn't tell you any. Uh, if you go to... Like, some of them like, can't you gum in a thing? Something that's weird. Um, if you go to Uganda... They call the shots there, you know? It's, you know, what's it delineated by? It's not just the line in the road. That's not the thing. No, what does the line in the road mark? Whose will is done? So you go there, you got to abide by their laws. You know what? Me and you have a kingdom or a queendom. You know what it is? It's your body. It's your mind. For the most part, until you hit about 60, 65, your body does what you want it to, right? Like you hit around that age and like, you're, you're like, get out of bed. And your body's like, nope, you know? But for the most part, if you say, raise your hand, grab that cup of coffee, if you tell your mind, think about NASCAR, you think a good old boy's turning left for three hours, right? How, how'd you do that? Well, that's, your, that's within your effective, the effective range of your will. You can do that. You can stand up. You have your way, generally, perfectly, in your mind and in your body. It's where you're in charge, isn't it? How'd you do that? Because you're in charge. Okay, well, God, Jesus said, the kingdom of God's come close to you. And the question I think that many of us have to answer and wrestle with today is is that good news to you? That was the message of Jesus. That was the good news of Jesus' message, that the kingdom had come close, that God's way of living. And we, I think we all would say, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. Do you? Because God gets his way perfectly there. Listen, if you're looking at porn, five times a week i don't think you'd like heaven because that's not going to fly if you if you harbor bitterness and anger in your heart and you feel justified in doing it justified in treating people like trash because they deserve it i don't know if you'd like heaven because in heaven god gets his way perfectly here you have free will don't you you can choose here you can be a jerk and God doesn't make, force you to do anything. And I don't really think he forced you to do anything in heaven. I think there you just want to do it. You've learned the wisdom of it. Do you really think you'd like heaven if gossip's not allowed? How are you going to feel good about yourself? How are you going to prove to the world that you're someone? I think some of us need to think about what exactly heaven is. Because in Jesus, heaven came close to you. And some of you are refusing the kingdom of God as we sit in these chairs because you think you know more than God. That was last week. We got to get on cuz that was all just supposed to be review. That was last week. This week is hope, y'all. Yeah, right after that, right, yeah. So <laughs> a, a little more, a little more chipper, right? Like I brought a friend today, Chris thinks. Hope is one of the central themes of Christmas, right? Israel O come o come in Israel strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Oh, holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Oh, by the way, if you think Christmas songs are lame, wake up, all right? They're some of the most theologically, I I am, I'm shocked when I walk into a grocery store and I hear, hark the herald angel. Have you ever listened to the words? Like so many of the modern Christian songs, those are the, I'm going to be mean, but yeah, easy, right, right, right. Dude, dude, listen to the words of Oh, holy night, right? It's, it's going to be in a, in a store somewhere. It's bizarre, right? Long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Do you want me to come around and like do that to when the oh, holy night's going to be, feel, feel the weight of it, right? A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Y'all, dude, Christmas songs are legit, all right? So when we, when we bust these things out, I expect everyone in, all right? They're amazing. So, oh, that was not in the notes. What's the hope of Christmas? That's what we're getting to. What's the hope of Christmas? Hope um, is a fascinating uh, thing in the Bible. It's a fascinating theme in the Bible. It might be said that the entire Bible, the entire book is written in hope. In other words, um, it's written, the Bible is written within the human experience of suffering and death and sickness all the while pointing to a hope beyond human experience. You see? So written in a world where the only thing we know is suffering and death and sickness, and yet the entire time is pointing to a hope beyond what we experience, saying that there, there is a reality in which there is no suffering. Where'd you get that idea All we've ever known is suffering and death and sickness. It's written within the reality of suffering and yet points to peace and comfort and flourishing. It's written within the reality of scarcity. There's not enough to go around and yet points to abundance and provision, more than enough to go around, right? It's written within the reality of death and the whole time saying, yeah, but there's stuff after this. There's a life that never ends, right? It's written within the reality of sickness all the while saying, but supernatural healing can bust through. It's a real possibility, written within the reality of infertility. That's a part of human experience, isn't it? And yet, time and time again, the child of promise is born. Right? The whole Bible, not just the New Testament, the whole thing, hope is uniformly tied to one person. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, if someone asks, what's brown, hairy, and eats nuts, you know the answer is Jesus, right? So, you know, a squirrel, no, Jesus. You know, the whole thing's pointing to Jesus, the anointed one. That's what the Old Testament talks, the anointed one, the Messiah, who's gonna crush the snake. The entire Bible, y'all, pointing to this person. Now, the claim of the New Testament is Jesus is that person, that he is the snake crusher. He is the hope, but he brings hope, but it's not as simple as we might think. Um, The hope of the world Came in the person of Jesus, yes. But if you look at the surroundings, the surrounding details of his birth, you might find hope does not always come in the way you'd like it to come. Let me read for us what we read earlier today uh, that Mike read for us. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying <clears throat> so she could not conceive; she was infertile. Thus, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Infertility, right? Took it away, took away the reproach of Elizabeth because she now has a baby. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern What sort of greeting this might be? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord your God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house. Reign. Kingdom, you see. Over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. See, for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary said, "Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done." I'm sorry. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. First, let's just point out: um, you see hope bursting in Elizabeth's life, don't you? That's the kind of hope we all love. I want something. God gave it to me. Wonderful, beautiful, right? That's the kind of hope we want. It's straightforward. It's it's not controversial. Um, it's a hope that takes away reproach. Did you hear? She wanted a kid. She couldn't have it. God allowed her to conceive. That was John the baptizer. What about Mary? How did hope come to Mary? How did the hope of the world come to you? See, Elizabeth was married. Conceiving was fine. Mary was not. (laughs) And for a first century Jewish girl, getting pregnant out of wedlock had potentially life-threatening ramifications. Mary was more... Um, than likely, as theologians and scholars tell, a teenager based on first century Jewish practice. Um, when I was in high school and a teenager got knocked up, as we called it, you know, she would get like bad looks at Walmart and rumors were spread about her. For, for Mary, okay, at best, permanent social and economic ruin. At best, at worst, drug into the streets and stoned to death. That was the first century atmosphere of what happens to girls who get pregnant out of wedlock. You look at the last words. Well, don't look. It's okay. I'll just tell you. The last words of Mary, what were they? And then compare them to the last words of Elizabeth. The last words of Elizabeth are, God's taken away my reproach. Mary just says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your will. Those are the, according to your word, um, those are the words of a person who understands the authority of the king. Mary understood the authority of the king. My point here is, she didn't say it's going to take take away my reproach, did she? (laughs) Because Mary knew the birth of the hope of the world was the death of her hope of a normal life. The vision of marriage, the dreams of being betrothed to Joseph, a good man, was falling between her fingers because Joseph was a good man. And he would never marry the woman who runs around and gets pregnant during her engagement. And we know, in fact, that Joseph was planning to divorce her quietly, according to Matthew 1.19. Do you know why he was planning to divorce her quietly? So she would not be put to shame. When Mary said, let it be done to me according to your word, she was saying yes to a life of shame. She had no reason to believe that that Joseph at the time would stay around with her. No reason to believe that. She knew what she was saying yes to. Listen, I've heard the God card, you know, pulled on some pretty dumb things in life. But saying, God got me pregnant? i guess more than scandalous. Like it's sacrilege, it's obscene. Mary knew when she uttered those words, let it be to me according to your word, her life was falling apart. She was agreeing to shame and reproach for the rest of her life. We see in Mary a kind of surrender that most of us will avoid at all cost. We want Elizabeth's hope. We want the kind of hope in which we say, I wanted this and you gave it to me and now I have hope. But for Mary, her heart was being broken so God's heart could be revealed. Or as Simeon said in the temple when they brought the baby Jesus to him, he says to Mary, he says, listen, this this kid, he's gonna be the light to all, to the, the Gentiles, but your heart's gonna get pierced with a sword by the end. Listen, don't let the soft pastels of Christmas the Christmas story fool you. Like, I love the idea of, like, silent night and no crying he makes, but it's just not a reality. And a certain one for, it certainly wasn't for Mary. For the hope of the world to come, her hopes of a normal life had to die. And at this point of the story, like I said, she had no reason to believe that Joseph would believe her. And then the, now an angel eventually comes to Joseph and explains, hey, this is what's going on, you know, don't freak out. And he hangs out. But she's, when she says, let it be done to me according to your word, she's saying, basically, I'm probably going to be a single mom for the rest of my life raising a child in poverty, socially and religiously ostracized for getting pregnant out of wedlock. And if you move on too quickly from this, you will miss how the hope of the world came and how God brings hope sometimes to us in the gospel. This is a very simple truth, but in many ways, it's a truth that I don't think a lot of people seem to know. Often, to experience the hope of the gospel, a sword has to pierce your heart. What do I mean? How? For us to know the hope of God... God, sometimes well, every time, probably I'd say, often has to show us the depths of how short-sighted and selfish your own personal hopes are. And let me tell you, it feels like a sword. In other words, you're never going to grab onto the hope of God if you're holding onto to your own. You have to surrender your hopes every time, y'all, to grip to, to grasp the hope of God. And I don't want to act like I've been there and done that a million times, and I'm like some sort of. Expert, but when I came onto this church, I started a photography company because they couldn't pay me peanuts. And that photography company made more than I've ever made in my entire life, which is not super hard. I was a teacher in, in ministry before that, so I didn't know. But dude, I felt like I was like the richest person in the world. It was awesome. And I wish I could say that um, this year is the first year I've been full time. And I wish I could say when that time for me to shut down my photography company and come on here, I wish I could say it was like a super happy time, uh, but I was depressed for like a month. I remember one Sunday sitting in my backyard after church, what great church, and I was wrestling through. Do I really want to do this? Because I'm making boo koos of cash shooting pictures. And y'all, I had to grieve. And you're like, come on, man. You're a pastor. You're not supposed to say this kind of stuff. You're supposed to be like, live your life for Jesus. It's awesome. I'm, it was, and it is, but I'm just telling you the reality of my life. I had to grieve the loss of not being able to buy anything I wanted to buy at any point. It's, a, it's, a, it's great. It's great. Anyone ever done that's awesome, right? And I'm sitting there in the backyard thinking, do I want to do this? Am I going to, am I going to, and it was a slow, I wish I could say I just decided and it was like, yeah, here we go. No, it was a slow death, man. Like it was like, you know, I, I mean, I hate to admit it. It was like dragging my heels. I, another, but finally I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And we did it, you know, and it's been amazing. Another instance. I remember when I got saved, I was playing music when I got saved. Music was a big part of my life. Um, and um, I remember going over to this very attractive girl's house as like a 17-year-old and playing the piano for her. And I could tell she was like super impressed, you know, so, right? And and she she was she she loved it and she was like, oh, you can play that song. And I said, like, Yeah, I can play other songs too, you know? And um, and so I left just super pleased with myself, you know. I was awesome. Like, she's super cute, and that was great. So it's funny, it's funny. By the time I got home, um, my mood had shifted dramatically um, because I felt the Lord confronting me. And I felt him saying to my heart, do you think I gave you this gift so you could get girls? Is that why you think I gave you this? You think that's what this is about, so you can impress chicks? Is that the kind of guy you are? Is that how you're gonna use the gifts I give you? And I went from like cloud nine to like, whoa, you know? Got home, just went upstairs, got in bed. I went to bed without dinner. I remember that. I was just laying in bed repenting before God, you know? Interestingly, I remember the next morning just feeling like a brand new man at the ripe age of 17. But um, to this day, you know, good point. I remember that as a, high, as, a, as a moment in my life where I laid something down. And I, I mean, I, in my opinion, I would go on to have a very successful and impactful worship ministry for the next 15 years of my life. Leading worship all over Going and success. Some of you are in here because we met when I was leading worship at your youth group. Right? I, God blessed that. But he had, I had to lay it down first. I had to lay down my agenda, my visions, the things that I wanted to achieve through that, right? Now, like, like, fun twist, that attractive girl became my wife later, so it kind of (laughs) worked on both. Yeah. But, But the point is, it's a true story. It's a true story. The point is, y'all, we want the immediate. We want the temporal. Our visions and hopes most of the time are limited to our own pleasures, uh, often at the expense of others. We hope for things that will fade a lot of times. That won't last. We hope for the praise of men. We hope for riches that will rust. We hope in, not just for, we hope in those things. You know the difference? You hope for something, you're like, well, maybe one day. You hope in it, it's like, oh, right now. How many of you right now, your hope is in money? If I can just buy anything I want to buy, that's where I will, that's really life, you know? I can get that raise, right? And God oftentimes has to reveal to us the emptiness of our hopes to raise our vision to His. And if you have a death grip on what you are hoping in, then you will never understand or or be able to experience the hope that comes in Christmas. Or put it in kingdom language, until you surrender your kingdom, you can't go into His, Guys, we have to surrender our hopes before the Lord to understand his own. To know the hope of God, we have to surrender the hopes of men. we got to let them go. We have to forfeit our vision. We have to lay it down before the king and let him say, let it be to me according to your word. And if you choose to revive this wonderful, but I want you, not the gifts. I want you, not the things that your gifts can give me. Right? Oswald Chambers calls this the great white funeral that each of us have to go through to grieve the loss of our hopes and dreams that in the end are temporal and short-sighted. And in reality, God is giving you something way more valuable, something eternal, something that will last. Right? See, if Mary had a death grip on her vision of domestic life, right, I'm going to marry this guy and it's going to be amazing, Right? she would not have been able to open her hands to the gift of God. God's vision for her life, right? I'm going to be pregnant. Lord, do you know how this will affect my social life? Like, I'm going to have stretch marks, right? Right? Like, she, maybe she was a bowler. Maybe she was a bowler. She had to quit her bowling team, you know, to let, I'm just, probably not, but maybe, you know. God has to tell us very often, your hopes are really short-sighted. And a lot of times, guys, we go through a grieving period where we have to die to those things to know the hope of God. But some of us will sooner go to the grave than loosen our grip on the things we hope in. And I'm telling you, for many Christians, it's straight up money. For some really weird ones, it's religious reputation. You know? <laughs> a lot of people, it's just sexual gratification. That's what makes life worth living. Yeah, we're made for attachment. We're gonna we're gonna attach to things. When we're detached from God, we're gonna attach my Aaron, my buddy Aaron says we're like free radicals. You know, we're just attach ourselves to all sorts of things. We're looking for hope, we're looking for hope, right? Listen, what you hope in is what you think makes life worth living. If you want to know what you hope in, like, you know, what do you hope in? Well, what makes life worth living? Well, that's what you hope in, my friend. Uh, but if you really get down to the bottom. Uh, the source of most people's hope, it's just in themselves. We just hope in us. And part of the piercing knife of the gospel, part of encountering the kingdom is realizing the hope of Christmas is not a hope that is in ourselves. It's not in you. It's not in me. It's not in this room. It's not in these lights. not in this microphone. It's not in this sound system, right? It's a hope that does not rest on our shoulders. Now, this is very liberating if we think about it. It seems easy enough, but you go through the entire Bible and what we see, the people of God over and over again, hoping in themselves, hoping in Egypt, hoping in Babylon over and over again. No matter what God does for them supernaturally, no matter what miraculous salvation he wrought for them, they resort to hoping in themselves or hoping in their neighbors for security, for abundance, right? The prophets are full of warnings. The Psalms full of invitation. Let me just show you a few. Uh, Isaiah 31 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt and for, what are the words? Help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord, who, who <clears throat> set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of the Most High. I'm sorry, I'm sorry the shadow of Egypt. Sorry. No, the reason I confuse that because most of the time that's God language. We seek shelter in God. And yet what's happening here, right? Isaiah 31.3, the Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. I love that for some reason. I love it. Jeremiah 17 says this. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. Wow. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited, salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Remember, the Egyptians were the ones who enslaved the Hebrews and the prophets rebuking them for hoping in their former oppressor. And the language is telling, right? All that language, like I said, is used for God in the Bible. He's rebuking them for trusting in Right, Taking refuge in, seeking shelter in, Egypt and not the Lord. In other words, they were expecting from men only what God can do. That's what they were doing. And let me tell you something. Men make crummy gods. Right? Spouses make crummy gods. Jobs make crummy gods. Friends make horrible gods. All right, they can't give you the kind of help and refuge and shelter that we really want and only reflect the refuge and shelter that God himself wants to do. And it shows you what God's will is for your life, y'all. He wants such union and trust with you that you rely on him. That was the language. He was rebuking them for not relying on God. That's some sort of concrete expectation. And he's saying, guys, you're relying on Flesh. Men, other people, because you look at them, you think they seem strong. They seem like they could protect me, all the while God is saying, I am strong, I want to protect you. You guys see what it's doing here? No one? Okay, well, no, I was just, I, was just... <laughs> I don't know how you see God this morning, okay? Uh, but if you don't see him as wanting to be a refuge for your heart, a protection, a shelter, then you don't know the God of the Bible. And all through the Psalms, we see an invitation, right? Psalm 33, uh, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its might, it cannot rescue. Uh, Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. My hope is from him. For you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust from my youth. I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. So the Bible, all the time, pointing to hope, all the time. But it's a hope that we seem to struggle to possess, isn't it? We prefer hope that we can control, hope we can see. Uh, We kind of want like a faithless hope, hope that doesn't require trust and faith. But if you think about it, faithless hope is an oxymoron because what is hope? It's grounds, stay back, come back with me. It's grounds for believing good may come. That's what hope is. Grounds for believing good may come. Hope is expectation, that's what hope is. When you expect something to happen, you hope something's going to happen. It's expecting something with confidence, right? And when our confidence is in our own strength and wisdom, y'all, the process of learning to put our confidence in God can sometimes feel like a, a, a knife to your soul. Because you've got to learn. The Confidence in yourself is a dead-end street. Or to put it in another analogy that's even more, if you've ever been in the room um, when, a, when a baby is born... Sometimes learning to trust in God can be more likened to that. Blood, screams, tears, pain. Because we have to let go of our ideas before we can take, and no wonder they call it being born again. It's free, y'all, but it ain't easy. It's free, but it ain't easy. And sometimes the death of our hopes, it's, it's the kind of labor, in fact, many times labor is used as an analogy of God's hope coming into our life. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not clean and pretty sometimes, right? That's what they call it being born again. It's why in the Bible there seems to be this advantage given to prostitutes, sinners, the sick, outcasts, the blind, and the lame. It's often quite confounding. You ever notice this? The Bible seems to exalt these people. Like, doesn't God want us to be healthy and strong and glorious, right? Who reflect his glory? Well, yes, of course. Uh, he always wants us to be healthy and strong. Um, it, but he says things like, you know, only the sick need doctors. Blessed are the poor. Why does he say all this kind of stuff? Why does he say this? You ever read the Bible? Why does he say that kind of stuff? Blessed are the poor. You know, it's like, should we be sick and poor? Is that what the Christian thing is? Uh, it's because when we are strong and healthy and glorious, we tend to think it's a reflection of our glory. You see, not his. And so he has to dislodge you from this idea. See, we think I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I've worked hard to get these abs, right? <gasps> right? You think I got these abs by sitting around, right? I've worked hard for these abs, right? Or like maybe you're a woman and you have like amazing hair. You're like, you think I just got, this? you think I just woke up one day and got the, well, yeah, you did actually. You grew out of your hair, but like, you know, it's beautiful, right? I paid for these haircuts. I got the Ab Master 2000 Pro. You did, and that's great. You did the work. That's that's awesome. It's not totally false. Like you you got you paid 200 bucks for a haircut. Congratulations, right? (laughs) But but here's the thing. Who came up with the idea of abdominal muscles? Like whose idea was that? Like did you put the muscle tissue on your rib cage or wherever that's supposed to work? Did you like did you make your hair grow? Did you? Right? No. No, dude. Let me tell you something right here about your beautiful hair and your six-pack. All right? Life and all of its pleasures and capacities have been given to you. What are you doing to sustain your vision right now? You're like, well, I eat carrots. You, is that, is that all right? What are you doing to make your spleen work? Right? All of life is a gift, bro. Everything—the air you breathe in your lungs, the fact that your heart is beating right now—is gift. And when we think. We are solely responsible for the good in our life. You know what it does mentally? You become a jerk because you did the work. Why can't they do the work? I did the sit-ups, right? Why can't he do the sit-ups, right? We think when we are solely responsible for all the good in our life, we tend to be people who don't know how to access empathy. Do you know how to access empathy for others? Do you know how to be compassionate? If not, it might be because you think you made yourself. You think you brought yourself into existence. Those type people are absent of compassion. They're harsh and cruel with others because they think I had to be harsh and cruel with myself. (laughs) Right? Right? And let me tell you what it creates. And I'll tell you, I mean, you do need to be harsh and cruel with yourself from time to time. But let me tell you what it creates. It creates prideful, arrogant people who have no motivation to help others. They have no humility. They have no love. And the gospel does the exact opposite. The gospel creates humble people, highly motivated to extend radical compassion to others. Why? Because the gospel clarifies where your hope comes from. It does not come from you. It reminds us the breath in our lungs, the muscle in our bones, the blood in our veins is gift from God. But more than that, the light in your eyes, the grace in your voice is gift from God. The gospel reminds us existence itself is gift, yes, but also forgiveness, joy, hope, peace, love in our hearts. If we experience it in any capacity, you are experiencing a reflection of who God is as grace to you. Any joy, any peace, any love is a drop out of the bucket of God's love, joy, and peace. If he is the creator of all things, it's intellectually true. It's true. You are not a self-made person. You are made in his image, created beautifully, wonderfully, but God has created you, and if you believe this, it will free you up to say, hey, if you see any discipline in me, see anything any good in me, it's not my fruit. It's fruit of the Spirit. You see any love, patience, kindness, compassion in me? It's not me, dude. It's because I've seen love, grace, kindness, and compassion in God towards me, and it frees me ultimately from having to shoulder my own hope. Some of you today are shouldering your own hope. You think it's on you, right? And it frees us from having to hold up our own hope, and we can acknowledge hope doesn't come from ourselves comes from the outside. It always does, y'all. It always does. When you're up the creek without a paddle, how, what's your hope? If you're in the dark with no light, there's nothing you can do. Hope always comes from the outside in. Think of any movie, right? Where they look and they see something over the corner and all of a sudden they have this new strength, right? And they pull it. It always comes from the outside in, right? When the Bible seems to give an advantage to the sick and the outcast and the sinner. It is not saying you need to pretend to be sick or imagine you are more lowly than you are. Or as some Christians seem to think, oh, to be sure we sinned a little this week or are horribly unhealthy because, you know, only the sick need a doctor. Not at all. It's calling you to face the reality of humanity that outside of God, you are in the dark. You're in the wilderness, as the scripture said, and that God, God alone is your hope, right? No matter how healthy or unhealthy you are. Some Christians seem to think it's their birthright to be unhealthy and dysfunctional. No, that's sin clinging to you. Your birthright as a Christian is to walk in the health and freedom and power of Jesus, to be free of unhealthiness and dysfunction. See, the difference between Christians and non isn't just that the Christians know they're sick. It's that the Christians know where health comes from, where true health comes from. The Christian knows the exact location of their hope and the source of hope, and it is not them. It's not others. It's not nations. It's not governments. It's not the war horse for salvation, right? It's not by the great might of an army, but, the, but, by, but from the Lord. For behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. In conclusion, y'all, Advent also reminds us that the Christian hope is not simply that Jesus came, Uh, The hope that the authors of the New Testament are continually putting in front of us is that he will come again. Advent is a looking back and a looking forward. The hope that God wants to give you is not simply wishful thinking for today or historical in nature, that he came a long time ago, but it's that he will come back. This is the hope of the Christian, that one day, completely, fully, comprehensively, his kingdom will come and right what's wrong in the earth, that he will shake sin and wickedness out of the earth like we shake a rug. So confident were the New Testament writers in this hope, that the brightness of this hope, that they would say things like this. You know, all the darkness and suffering that you've experienced in this life, why don't we just think about it for a second? It's fun to do at church, isn't it? Let's just think about the acute suffering that you've had to endure in your life that maybe no one one else knows about. Why don't we just think about the darkness that we've had to walk through in life? Why don't we think about the experiences that we would never wish on our enemies? You got it? Okay, so the New Testament writers said things like this. That, that thing that happened to you, all the horrid things in the world, in the history of the world that you can think of, all the evils that men have contrived, Aren't even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. In other words, stay with me. In other words, you can't put them on the scale and they'll even out. God doesn't say, you know, if you've experienced a lot of suffering, I'll just kind of even it out in the end to make life, you know, kind of worth living. No, they're saying you can't even compare it. They're saying the scale will flip. The glory coming will so overwhelmingly outweigh and overshadow any and all suffering. He's not, listen, he's not belittling your suffering. The Bible never does that. He's not saying, oh, you're suffering so small. No, he, he's saying it is great. He's, he's not commenting on the smallness of your pain. He's commenting on the greatness of the glory to come. He's saying it is so much better, so much better that the kingdom of God is so pure, so bright, so hopeful that it, will, it won't even be worth comparing to the worst atrocities that man has contrived. And we've contrived some wicked things, haven't we? We've all endured it. In our own life, we've endured wicked things. And the promise of the New Testament is that the glory to be revealed when the kingdom of God comes in fullness will so outshine and overshadow all that stuff, it won't even be worth comparing. This is the promise of the New Testament, y'all. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You can just sit on that for a month, man. Consider what that means. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth. Interesting. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Groaning, Right? Who have the first fruits of the spirits. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, adoptions as, for adoption as sons and daughters. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Hope that is seen. This is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And for any who have eyes to see this morning, for those who believe... Even the evils we've experienced because we live in a fallen world, in the end, can be used by God as a tool of redemption, freeing you from your short-sighted visions and giving giving you the hope of God himself. So today, whatever you think makes life worth living, whatever you find your hope in, present tense, I wonder what God may be saying to you about the temporal nature of those hopes, about the vapor essence The temporality, you see? Uh, It's like a vapor, he might say. You know that hope you have? It's really fleeting. And I wonder how many of us God is calling today to lay down some hopes that we have lodged on temporal things so that he can raise our hopes to something higher, something more glorious, something eternal. Let me pray for us. Jesus, God, would you bring us hope the way you bring it? I think we have the idea of how we want hope to come to our lives, we want hope to come by like giving us what we want. And sometimes it's what we want that's killing us. So God, for my friends today, where there's areas where they are hoping in things that in fact are causing death, not bringing life, would you reveal that to them right now that they may lay down those hopes to take up yours. God, I pray that today would be a moment of surrender for some of us. We'd raise the right white flag and say, I've been making a mess of this thing. Jesus King, would you come and would you make your authority and wisdom known in my heart right now that I might have a hope in life that transcends all that I can see? Something more unshakable than the world itself? Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do.